So beginning in Matthew chapter 4, I want to read to you the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Uh, We will start reading in verse 18. So up to this point, the book of Matthew has told us about who Jesus is. It's given us a genealogy all the way back to David so that so that people who were Jewish in the audience that Matthew was speaking to would know, oh, oh, son of David, Jesus, he's one of ours. He's, 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 he's a son of Abraham. He's, he's one of our people. That's the case that Matthew wants to make. But then he tells us pretty an amazing thing about, uh, about the, uh, the, the events surrounding Jesus' birth. And then he's gone out into exile because a local magistrate wants to kill all of these children uh, that he thinks will one day become this Hebrew Messiah, and Jesus is going public. So beginning in verse 17, Jesus takes his ministry public, and the first thing he does we see is what he says, and the second thing we see is what he does. Beginning in verse 17, from that time, that is the time that Jesus says, I'm I'm the one, I'm the one that identifies as the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he, that is Jesus, saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel, that is literally the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. My prayer is that these words of Jesus become more than just ink on a page, but they become the very words of God for the people of God. Jesus begins his public ministry with two profound things, an announcement of a kingdom and a call to repentance, and then a calling to himself of disciples. Those two things. He has a message, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, you'll see in the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke, that phrase is is more readily found, the kingdom of God. Don't be be fooled, they're not separate things. This is just Matthew being a well-trained religious Jew, okay? And so a well-trained religious Jew would never speak the name of God that is ineffable for them. And even to this day, instead of saying the name Yahweh, they would say Adonai, my Lord, as a replacement for what you find in the Old Testament. Whenever you're flipping through the Bible, most of your translations will have four letters, L-O-R-D, all caps. And it's, it's an announcement. This is the name of God. Now, Matthew, being a good religious Jew, would never say the name of God. And so he uses basically an, a, a kind of a replacement where Luke would again, not have the religious roots in, in Jewish history like, like Mark or Luke would either have, but like Matthew would have. Um, and they are willing to say Jesus was preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. But here we see he's saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven. And this is just so we, we can kind of see he's speaking to a largely Jewish group of people. So he doesn't want to offend them unnecessarily. He says, the kingdom of heaven. And they would have known what that was. A good Jew would have heard that and said, oh, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of of not of this world. We've got two different separations here. You've got this kingdom that is to come and what the Old Testament refers to as this present evil age. And Jesus is saying, there is good news. The word gospel here we 
We see him saying a few verses later, he says, there is good news. This new kingdom is coming and replacing the, pre- pre- excuse me, the present evil age. The old age marked by death, the old age marked by sin and brokenness is coming to an end. And the new age marked by eternal life, by life instead of death, by reconciliation and restoration instead of wrath and punishment and judgment, this new age is breaking into the old such that from this moment on, the kingdom is now, the word says here, at hand. The kingdom is at hand. It's here in Jesus. The old age, the old age that was, the the present darkness is coming to an end, announced at the coming of Jesus. Death no longer has a grip announced at Jesus. And the new kingdom that Jesus is bringing, that's good news for us, marked by life, marked by restoration, marked by the presence of God with his people being restored among them, That's the new age that's to come, and that's good news. And the first thing he does when he says this kingdom is coming is he starts to do something that that is meant to be an usher for that kingdom. He says, while he was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon and Peter, and their brother Andrew, and then, Simon and Peter, excuse me, Simon, Peter, and his brother Andrew, and then another pair of brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. I love that. Um, as a younger brother, I respect how he says that. James, the son. James, and then James' brother, right? I don't know if you're, if you're a younger brother. You, you, this is real, right? James, the son of Zebedee. John, James' brother. Is he the son of Zebedee? Well, I mean, maybe, but he's, mostly he's just like the little brother. This, this hits my soul, right? And both of them regardless, are called to follow Jesus. And the same word describes their following of Jesus that describes Simon and Andrew's following of Jesus. Did you catch it? Mark loved this, remember? Because Mark is scatterbrained and he says immediately this and immediately this and immediately that. And what does Matthew say? When Jesus calls people, what do they do? Immediately drop what they're doing and follow them. Side note here, as, a, as one of like the, I would say, maybe like the core tenets of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, I, I, would, I would just kind of put this out here um, for you to consider. A disciple is first marked by radical obedience. Uh, we see this elsewhere. Jesus kind of comes up, demands obedience, and the people jump in and they follow. That's important because there's only one time in the Bible, as far as I'm aware, unless you can come to someone else, you know, you can rebuttal, you have a rebuttal to this, but there's only one time in the Bible where obedience to God is described as a long period of time in which people slowly get to where God wanted them to go. Can you think of it? It's the wandering of God's people after the exodus in the wilderness. They're on their way to the promised land, but the slow and arduous process to get people where God wants them to be is actually caused by disobedience rather than obedience. Notice what Jesus did not do. Because after all, even a baby can look at something and go, wah, I don't like this. The marks of maturity are when a child at some point goes, I'm hungry, I'm going to go to the cupboard and get some food, right? Notice what Jesus does not do. Jesus does not go up to these men and say, let me give you five reasons why being a fisherman is terrible. Let me give you five reasons why what you're doing is bad and you're called away from it. He doesn't do that, does he? And what's the process of obedience there? Is it a long and arduous process? Does he go, hmm, to Simon and Andrew? I wonder, I don't know. It says immediately they drop what they were doing and they follow Jesus. They saw Jesus for what he is. They saw the ultimate treasure that Jesus was as God with them. They saw that Jesus is worth it and they dropped everything to follow him. That's powerful. Practically speaking, this means that if someone comes and tells you God's calling me away from something, push back on them, Okay? God never calls anyone away from anything without first holding out what they're being called toward. Most of the time, if you feel called away from something, I I just, again, I'll I'll leave a very small room because it's just rare. Maybe maybe God's going to make you the exception. Maybe you are a snowflake and you're special. But the rest of the time, when God calls us to something, there's very little about what we're called away from. Very little. And if you can come up 10 reasons why you think you're not supposed to be, I mean, like, I'm called away from something, but you can't think of one where you're actually being called to, stop. You're probably just being a child. Wah, I don't like this. The disciples are called to a vision, right? This, This is culminated in the New Testament. We believe that we look to Christ, who is what? The author, the beginner, and perfecter of our faith. We see he's the treasure. He's the goal. He's the prize. 
And we spend very little, if any time, thinking about what's behind us. In fact, we, the Bible tells us, throw off every hindrance. We throw off the need to complain about our present circumstances. We lay them aside. We throw off the hindrance. We throw off the sin that entangles us. And we pursue Christ above all. This is what it means to be a disciple. This is what it means to follow Jesus. So let's begin to define some terms that often are poorly defined. And I would just say the church has done a bad job of explaining We get Jesus, he calls them to obedience. Here's a kingdom, follow me, I'm bringing about something, okay? So in the strictest sense, a disciple of Jesus is a pupil, a student, or a learner of Jesus. In the very strictest sense, that is what a disciple is. Now, this for us is, 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 I don't know, this has Old Testament roots. You can see this in the book of, of Isaiah, uh, where even the ESV translates the, the term learner as a disciple. And the people who would follow, say, some priests or some prophets would have been called learners. That, that, word, that word used, learner, in the Old Testament is limud or lamad. It's where we now get the word, and if some of you kind of know your, 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 your Western, history of Western civilization, the Talmud or Talmudim, which is the teaching documents for, for Hebrews, for people who believe in the uh, would, would call the Old Testament their, their Hebrew scriptures. The Talmudim is the teaching documents that go along with them. So if you're a Talmudim, you are literally a learner. You are someone who is learning from someone else. So people would have known this. This would have been kind of, this would have been kind of I guess, noteworthy for this. But, but the, the exception here, and this is what makes it kind of crazy, is that in the Old Testament and for Hebrew scholars, for Pharisees, Sadducees, other priests and teachers, students would pick the teacher. There were several different schools of thought. Even now, these schools of thought still compete with one another. And a student would look at teachers and say, hey, I want to follow one of these people. They would kind of weigh the pros and cons, and they would choose a teacher. Look what Jesus does. Did you catch it? Didn't say, hey, again, here's the five reasons why you shouldn't be a fisherman. They drop what they're doing, and Jesus chooses them. I don't have enough time to unpack the theological significance of that. But Jesus chooses his disciples rather than what would have been typically understood as the disciples would have weighed their, you know, their options. Who should I follow? Jesus chooses who is going to follow him. Now, that word, disciple or learner or teacher, is a bit tricky for us to understand because this idea of disciple, this, the word is monthon, out of monthano or mathetes, which is to be learning, is, is kind of difficult for us to understand. In fact, the modern day example better would probably be translated, the disciple of Jesus is an apprentice of Jesus. This is important, this is not a knock on education, uh, but right now, uh, most, of, most of what we have in terms of learning is more about being a student than an apprentice, right? So most of education at this point is built on being students rather than apprentices. And there are special schools, and in fact, there are very few professions that still use apprenticeships. And you can think of them like an apprentice plumber, uh, an, you know, an, an, an apprentice electrician. Th- these things are still very common. Why? Because at one point, like you kind of need to learn from the example of a particular expert in the field, the master in the field. You sit under their teaching, but then you have hands-on training. Whereas, not always, again, not a knock on education, most of what we understand as a learner is actually something like a student. So this idea of just being a student of Jesus isn't necessarily the best thing. But that being said, the goal of a disciple of Jesus is to leverage what they have for the sake of drawing others into the glory of Christ. Look at where I get this. He says, follow me in verse 19, and I will make you, and he has like a, a brilliant little play on words, a fisherman, because he's a fish, there's your fisherman, right? I will make you fishers of men. Here's your present job. You're catching fish. I'm going to give you a new job. You're going to leverage what you know about catching fish, and and you're going to use it for the sake of drawing people in, catching people. Now, we'll get to why that's important, but like Jesus says, look, you're going to leverage what you have for the sake of drawing people towards the glory that God will reveal in Jesus Christ. This is incredibly important for us, I think. 
uh, one, of the, one of the biggest, I mean, you kind of have to deconstruct a whole lot, of, whole lot of baggage that you as a Christian might be bringing to the table. One of the worst misconceptions, I think, of what it means to be a disciple is this, this kind of notion that like being a disciple or a missionary is somehow like a varsity level job. Right, like it's it's reserved for the experts. It's reserved for people with certain types of degrees, and and that's what a missionary slash disciple, a person who draws people into Christ, who shares the gospel and makes disciples of Jesus, that's like for upper echelon kind of Christians, right? And what do we, I don't know if you noticed this? There was no graduation to this. It was literally the very first thing that Jesus said to these people. And the most basic premise of seeing Christ as Lord is that you begin to see everything around you as merely leverage for the sake of drawing more glory to Christ. So you'll say, you know, you're good at something. Maybe you've got a talent. Maybe you've got a skill. Okay, if Jesus is Lord, he's above all things. If the new kingdom that he's coming is his kingdom, and he's, okay, remember, he's the one allotting things to certain people, then is it possible that the thing you're good at isn't because of your own merit or your own skill? Is it possible that God might have had allotted that thing to you for the sake of his glory? Is it possible that these men, good fishermen, were in fact allotted the gifts that they had for the sake of the glory of Jesus? So a disciple first and foremost here, is a learner of Jesus, right? A disciple is a learner of Jesus. A disciple of Jesus is a learner. He's going to learn, but, but learn in a more profound way than just a student who graduates from a class. A disciple of Jesus is a follower of Jesus. They're willing to lay down things for the sake of following after Jesus. But there's something radically different between someone who who simply learns from a teacher and follows in the footsteps to be like someone that they emulate versus what he's calling them to do is to leave their own identity. And so therefore, what we find out is that a disciple of Jesus is also a believer of Jesus. You flip through the book of Acts where the apostles take this new thing, this idea of catching people, drawing people into. I mean, again, maybe you don't fish with a net, um, but even then, like you lure a fish in, you try to catch a fish. You say, hey, look, here's something good, and you, you draw them in. And whatever, however that begins to, to kind of work in your own mind, that ought to begin to, just like these first fishermen, shape the way that you understand what God has called you to do and to be in the world. So those of us who call ourselves Christians believe that we're put here for a purpose. And every gift and every ability we have is ultimately to be leveraged for the sake of drawing people to Jesus. Why? Because we believe in him. We believe he is who he says he is. We believe that he has done what he has come to do. So let me stop right there for just a moment. If you're in this room, maybe you wouldn't call yourself a believer in Jesus. Maybe you wouldn't even call yourself a follower of Jesus. But may maybe you at least consider the possibility of learning from the words of Jesus. But, but you wouldn't call yourself a Christian or a disciple. I'm really glad you're here because I want you to hear exactly what it is on its merits that we believe that we're called to be and what it is that God has called us to exist for in the world. This thing that we call the church and the thing that we, we sometimes get classified as Christians has some particular values that are really important to us. And we believe that the first, and first thing that Jesus has called us to do is to trust in him, to believe that he is who he says he is. We say this all the time. Remember the, the people come to Jesus in the Gospel of John and they say, Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? They're like, basically, what's God's will for my life? And what does Jesus say? What does Jesus say? He says, the work of God is to believe in the one whom he has sent. Just let that blow your mind for a minute. They're like, Jesus, what do you want me to do? And he's like, nothing. Believe in me. This is, I don't know, this, this is the cool part. This is not about you. And so one of the worst things you can do is to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, what must I do? As though you can do anything. We love to quote AA. Um, they, Alcoholic Anonymous talks about this. Your best thinking is what got you into this mess. By all means, like, 
Stop doing things. You doing things is making things worse. And Jesus comes along and goes, rest from doing. Rest from trying to work. Rest from trying to earn this. You trust me. I've paid this thing in full. I've done it for you. Believe in me. You want to do the work of the Father? Believe in the one who he's sent to do all the work for you. I mean, just for a minute, let that just like put you to rest. Like right now, you're, you're afraid in this sermon, I'm going to get to the part where I go, do better. You're doing bad. Stop doing all that stuff. Do all the good stuff, right? You're, you're, you're waiting for that painful, shameful moment, right? And, and, and what, what do I have here for you? Stop. Rest. This is not about you. We sing lots of songs. You may like some of them. You may dislike others. Here's the best part about them. None of them are about you. The only person we care that likes the music is Jesus. He gets all the attention. He gets everything he wants. We lay down everything for him. Now, for you, maybe if you would call yourself a Christian, this is where this is actually going to hurt. If you're, like, if you're new to Christianity, you're new to thinking about what Christ has done for you, this is probably, this is like you're hungry. You're like, oh, this is good. I, like, I, you know, I want to trust this. I want to be this. The people, if I read the Bible right, that Jesus had the most problems with, in fact, we saw this in Jonah, are the highly religious people. So if you're in this room and you find yourself saying, oh, I know what it means to be a Christian. I know what it means to follow Jesus. Just wait. Just go slow because you're actually the one that this will hurt the most. The people who are hungry and humble, they just drop their nets and follow Jesus. It's the people who think they have it figured out. Jesus is the most ruthless too. And that's because a, follow, excuse me, a disciple of Jesus is also a believer in Jesus. They've given up on their religious activity. They've given up on their efforts to earn favor with Christ. Don't miss this. If you call yourself a Christian, this is where this, you have to hear this good news. A religious person says, I do good things, therefore God loves me people who believe and trust in Jesus and in his work and find that to be good news don't. They say God loves me therefore I do good things. Got to get those in the right order. You got to get those in the right order because the rest of the things I'll talk about about laying down your life for Jesus man, brace yourself because here's what this passage gives us as a vision for discipling. Being a disciple, following Jesus, being a a learner, a follower, and an apprentice, and a believer in Jesus means this, that a disciple of Jesus makes more disciples of Jesus. I cannot be more clear about this. If, if this he says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. You're currently doing this thing, but you're going to leverage this thing to draw more people in to the glory that Christ deserves. Please don't miss this. This is not varsity, like this is not like upper echelon following of Jesus. This is pre-K following Jesus. Like this is, like the first thing they teach you is how to work with blocks and match colors and put shapes together. That's what making disciples for Jesus is, okay? And I, I've got, I, you know, I, gotta, I gotta hurt this for you because some of you are probably called yourself Christians for a long time and maybe there's nobody at this particular point that you're leading to trust and believe in and follow Christ. I gotta, you, I gotta slow down and talk with very small words. You missed like the building block stage. Like you missed the colors and letters. The ABCs of following Jesus is that we lay down our lives and lay down everything because we see him as Lord. And we do so in such a way that calls others to want to do the same. And to see Christ as our highest treasure and to pledge our highest allegiance to him and him alone. Now, a learner of Jesus will think that Jesus is just a smart guy who teaches cool things. A follower of Jesus may even just want the power that comes from, from maybe the social capital that is gained by living like Jesus. Draw a crowd, just like Jesus did. But a believer in Jesus, one who trusts that Jesus has completed this for us, that Jesus is Lord, he is who he says he is, and the Resurrection Sunday is a reminder to us that all that holds power over us was thrown off in Jesus. That's different. Jesus is Lord. 
This is elementary, again, pre-K, Jesus-following stuff. But this is what this looks like for the rest of the book. In Matthew chapter 18, while Matthew in, like, introduces us to this, you've probably heard us talk about this is what's called the Great Commission. It's Jesus' last words. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Don't miss that. Again, this is not, he's not a teacher who's like, hey, I've got some smart stuff for you to think about, you know, like to, it's for you who are intellectuals. He's not just like a buddy who wants to be your friend. He's like, I have all authority. Uh, our favorite quote on this one, uh, one of our favorite Dutch theologians, Abraham Kuyper, puts it this way, there is no square inch in all of the universe over which Jesus Christ does not say, that is mine. He possesses it all. Colossians 1 tells us that all things are in existence because of him, they're held together by him, and all things lead up to him. In him, the book of Acts tells us we, have, we are able to live and breathe, right? I love that. Uh, uh, a woman who's going to have a child understands this the best, right? In him, we have our being, and in him, we live and move and breathe. We don't exist apart from him. Like This, this is beautiful language that Jesus has. He's all authority. He is, he's the king. He's the Lord. And that's why what he declares is not repent because I've got some good ideas. Repent, turn your life around and follow me because I can be your friend. He says, turn around, follow me. There's a kingdom coming. And this kingdom is not of this world, it's eternal. So what does the king say? All authority has been given to me. Given to me. Go then, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is a big deal for us. This is not varsity Christianity. This is literally the first thing that Jesus told his disciples when he called them to follow him. Jesus wants to be something so valuable to us that it changes everything for us, and we draw others into being this. We see this for the rest of the New Testament. Paul teaching Timothy something about what he is called to do as he's leading this church in Ephesus. He says, you then, my child. I love that. What, what, what beautiful language for someone who's investing in and, and making a disciple of someone, teaching and training someone. Paul says to Timothy, my child, you get this, this loving endearment he's got. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. What is he telling, what is he telling Timothy? He's saying, look, you've got something in the grace of God. Don't keep it a secret. If God's done anything for you, pass it on. Entrust it to someone else. Give it to someone else. One of my favorite illustrations of this, uh, the New Testament church explodes in the book of Acts, and we see this kind of powerful movement that changes the world, quite literally. Uh, in Acts chapter 8, something amazing happens. Uh, beginning in chapter 6, Stephen begins to dispute with some of the religious leaders about who Jesus is. And Jesus is like, He's Lord, uh, he's God, he, raised, he was raised from the dead, and he said something that was kind of mean, kind of jabbed at him. He's like, the one whom you crucified, you know, kind of jabs at him, like, hey, you put him on the cross, but ha, 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 he came, he came out of the grave. That's my paraphrase. That's my own translation there. The ha, ha, ha. I assume that was what happened. But, so like, Stephen begins to teach. Now, this is important, okay, because the book of Acts is called the book of Acts because it's the Acts of the Apostles, the Acts of the Disciples, the apostles, if you will. Stephen was not a disciple or an apostle. And the most amazing things that begin to happen in the book of Acts are not with the apostles, but they're with the people that the apostles entrusted the gospel to. And Stephen's a good example. Stephen tells us in, in chapter 7, I encourage you to read in Acts chapter 7, it's one of the longest recorded sermons in the Bible, longer than any of the apostles. And it's a sermon written by a guy. Just a guy, not an apostle, not a disciple. Not one of the ones that Jesus said, come and follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. But one of the ones that because of what Jesus did, the disciples caught like a you know, net fish, I don't know what the right motion here. They caught this guy, Stephen, and Stephen's the one who begins to dispute with the leaders. So they get mad, and they're going to stone him and kill him, and put him to death. And we have an appearance of one of the apostles apostle paul who later comes to faith in christ and he shows up here he's the only apostle mentioned in the story the only disciple 
It says, and a Saul was standing there, apparently holding coats and approving of the execution of Stephen. And listen to this. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered. Now, don't forget, I don't want want you to miss this. Jesus says right here, verse 19, make disciples of all the nations. Acts 1.8 says, Jesus tells him right before he ascends to the Father, he goes, you're going to be witnesses, first here in Jerusalem, that's here, your place, then in Judea, that's your neighbors, then in, then in Samaria, that's like the people you don't like, and then to the ends of the earth, as if there was, there's no one left out here. So this is what happens. They begin to do this, and it actually happens through the persecution that started in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except who? The apostles! The most powerful and strategic movement of the gospel that scattered the gospel to the nations wasn't done by the apostles, the disciples. It was done by the people that the disciples and the apostles entrusted the gospel to. I love this. Verse 4, if you skip down, it says, And now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. I don't know if you caught that. It wasn't the varsity Christians. It wasn't the varsity level disciples that went and changed the world. It was just people who laid down their life for Jesus. They leveraged what they'd been given. Don't miss this. Man, I'm I'm going to shout this with exuberance and excitement. I'm going to tell you how Jesus is glorious and he deserves your allegiance. But in the end, the thing that will change Sioux Falls has nothing to do with me for the next 30 minutes. It has to do with what the gospel does when it's entrusted to someone else. It explodes. It goes crazy. And the people who testify to this aren't the the disciples or the apostles. In fact, they're just some people you don't know. So this is my favorite. In Acts chapter 11, we find out about a church planting center, a a missional center, Antioch. There are three of them that the Bible talks us to about or, or kind of points toward, and that's Antioch, Alexandria, and Rome. So, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, that's the, that would have been the Greek-speaking Jews, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. You see, so now, now a disciple isn't just marked by following of Jesus. Catch this in the book of Acts, a disciple of Jesus is marked by believing in Jesus. Now, this gets exciting, okay? Just notice that first phrase in verse, um, in, in verse 20. But there were some of them. You remember the names of the people in Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 18, right? It was Andrew, Simon, James, and John. But one of the largest church planting and missionary sending churches that exist at this particular time and place in the world was started by somebody we don't even know their names. And that's Luke's way of saying... This is ABC following of Jesus. You want to see the world change. It wasn't the disciples that necessarily did it. It was the the passion for the gospel that they passed on to others. And the three most influential church planting centers, missionary sending centers, Rome, Alexandria, and Antioch, we have no idea who started those churches. We We know it wasn't apostles. And in fact, by the end of chapter 11, we find out that this church that was a massive mission-sending agency did what? It was the one who sent Paul and Barnabas. Just catch the subtext for Luke here. Luke is telling you that one of the most impactful things that happened in the history of Christianity was started by some guys that you don't know. In fact, you don't even need to know them because it wasn't who they were. It wasn't their name that was great. It was the news that they were declaring that was great. And it changed everything. And then you get to this thing. This is where I want to delineate here. At the very end of that chapter, it says, and in Antioch, put these two words together, the disciples were first called Christians. This is a big deal. Uh, A modern philosopher by the name of Dallas Willard talks about the Great Commission, and he writes a book, and it's called The Great Omission. And it's based on this premise that over 250 times in the New Testament, we find the word disciple, the call to be disciples and to make disciples. Do you know how many times the word Christian is found in the New Testament? Three. Three times. 
And I want to delineate for you the difference between a disciple and a Christian. Okay? A disciple, as we already saw, we defined a learner, a follower, an apprentice, a believer of Jesus. A Christian is the name. Christian is the name that was given to them for the kind of the superficial fruit of them following Jesus and being disciples. Christian was the name that the outsiders gave because they were like, these people look like Jesus. They're like little Christs. They have people following around and they just started making fun. They're like, little, you little, you little, little Jesus, you. Ah, you little baby Jesus. That's what our Christian means. And it was meant to be a knock. But it was really an observation about the fruit of them following, believing, and trusting in Jesus. Don't miss that. A disciple is the identity of a person who follows, trusts, and adores and believes in Jesus. A Christian is a description of the ways in which following Jesus is played out in life. This one's substantive and relates to identity, loyalty, and worship. And this one, in the Bible, only relates to the outflow of what this loyalty looks like. But what's the word we tend to use the most? And Dallas Willard calls it the great omission. We talk about being a Christian. And we have the audacity to call people to be Christians before we've ever even told them what it means to be a disciple. Let this sit on you. This, this is the way I would observe this. A disciple of Jesus does not exist apart from a church. And a church does not exist apart from disciples of Jesus. There is a powerful outworking that God is doing in order here. And the terms are important. And that's why the term Christian never shows up in the New Testament. And the topic of the church that blows up from the book of Acts onward to the point where after that, literally the entire New Testament is written either to churches or about churches, is rooted in not Christians, people who identify with the outward markings of this movement, but the people who are loyal and willing to lay down their life and die for Jesus. And it's very important that you make a distinction. Because often people want to put on the outer superficial marks of the movement called Christianity and never consider, as Bonhoeffer tells us, the cost of discipleship. That when Jesus bids a person to come and follow him, he bids him to die. Jesus says radically, you want to follow me? You pick up your cross. You deny yourself. And you follow me. Shame on us for pitching, <laughs> for pitching a superficial type of Christianity that doesn't involve the most ABC fundamental color letter version of following Jesus. That Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth dying for. Jesus is worth laying down everything for. Here's what this means, that what you typically think of as, I'm going to put this in quotes very specifically, what you typically think of as Christian might in fact just be a superficial, surface-level alternative for what Christ has called us to be as disciples. You don't deserve to be called a Christian until you've borne the suffering and the weight of following Jesus as a disciple. This is who we are. So much so that the church even is the outflow of this. Side note here, since the Bible is all about disciples making up the church, this is really important for us. Uh, we are, we believe, a gab the church simply exists because disciples exist in the same place and call themselves a biblical body. That's it. Church is not a place. It's not a, I mean, three years ago, uh, we, had, we had a swear jar that if you ever refer to church as a place, like go to church, you had to put a dollar in it. It didn't exist. I mean, but like we would be like, ah, ah that's a dollar. Because the Bible never talks about the church with respect to time or location. It's like a team. You can't go to team. I go to team today. That doesn't, that doesn't make sense. You can't go to church. A church is a group of disciples. You can't, now a team can exist for a purpose. You can be a drill team or a dance team or a football team, whatever. But you can't go to a team. A team is not a time or a location or an event. In fact, the thing, the time, the location, and the event that the team happens to get together is like a game or whatever. That's like the superficial, I would say, like result of all the work that they've done practicing, training, and rehearsing the six days before that one game day. Same thing is true of the church. So we maybe need to reinstitute, reinstitute that. Like if you say, I go to Connection Church. Somebody goes, no, nope, can't do that. Church is not a place. Church is a people. It's a gathering of disciples. 
And they go, you owe a dollar. Or drop a, I don't know, whatever. I don't know where this dollar gets paid. It's a proverbial dollar. It's a metaphor. I haven't worked that out just yet. But the idea is that we're the people who gathers, we're the gathering of disciples, followers of Jesus. Where we do it, how we do it, what it looks like is like the most superficial thing you can talk about with respect to the church. And yet that tends to be what most people identify with Christianity or identify with the church. The music they had. You hear this? The kind of preaching or the like where they meet. I'm just, dude, it, they talk about a building, a place, stained glass, and the things that happen when they get together. And you ought to stop them and go like, you owe someone a dollar because you are misrepresenting the biblical church. The church is not a place. That's the most superficial level. This is literally the easiest part of following Jesus that you'll have this week. For some of you, I know it's hard for you to get here. I get it. Getting a bunch of kids in the car, all that good stuff. But like, here's what I would tell you. And it's not because I hate you. It's because I want to warn you. And like, this is what the enemy's after. Like this right now, this is literally the easiest part of following Jesus you'll have this week. It's the easiest. Every step after this, the call to lay down your life. Oh man, it's hard. It costs. But Jesus is worth it. So what does this mean? That means that the church is the primary mode of disciple-making. But make sure you don't miss that. The church is the byproduct of disciples being made. Just because you have a thing that calls itself the church and people that call themselves Christians doesn't necessarily mean that you have disciples being made. Oh, friend, I'm sorry. I wish that was not the case. I wish that everything that called itself the church was actually an outworking of people laying down their lives to follow, believe, and trust, and apprentice with Jesus but I'm afraid most of the time we've kind of settled for the superficial results of what a disciple actually looked like. You don't believe me? Ask those people what it means to follow and lay down their lives for Jesus or ask them about the most fundamental thing that they're called to do. Matthew 18 puts it this way. Now I'm gonna, I'm gonna try this. This is gonna be a, a, work on, a, a work of technology. But Matthew 18 says, look, go baptize, make disciples. Um, so this is what, again, again this, this may or may not work uh, but I, this, I want this to hopefully kind of help display for you uh, what it is that God has called us to be and to do in the world, all right? So let me just illustrate for you this, a cycle that's really important for the life of our church. So you've got Jesus over here, okay? And yeah, I know, crazy, but I have terrible penmanship, so don't get impressed yet. And Jesus, it seems, yeah, it, yeah, there we go. Jesus makes disciples. We know he came to live and die, to live a perfect life, die in our place, but he makes disciples. Okay? In fact, what he said, like, he, 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 he doesn't just, like, invite. He commands. He comes and he says, look, I have authority over everything. I'm just going to drop this card once. I'm in charge of everything. Do what I say. He commands the disciples. All right? Yeah, I got, we're working on it. But here's the place where most people lose it. The disciples were then called to go and baptize and make new disciples. I would say most people, yeah, it's, it's coming. Most people live in the top half of this, and they live in this place where they're simply at the most superficial level, following Jesus, learning from Jesus, but have never stood out in their faith. They have never laid down their life to the point where it calls others to have the same kind of allegiance and enthusiasm for the glory of Christ. And yet, this is ABC Christianity. This is ABC Jesus following. In fact, what Jesus then tells them to do is teach them to obey. Again, notice the lordship language here. And the basic fundamental picture of following Jesus isn't just that we ask people to like Jesus, tolerate Jesus, maybe even put a Jesus t-shirt on. No offense if you actually have like a Jesus t-shirt. I love that. It's cool. I love you. Um, or like a Jesus bumper sticker. But that's the most superficial, cheap way to follow Jesus. The most costly way is to lay down your life to the point where you leverage your present life for the sake of making disciples and then teaching them to obey Jesus even when what Jesus says you don't like. You don't get hung on a cross by telling people things that they want to hear. And so you won't win friends by telling people that Jesus is Lord 
But yet that's what we are called to be, and this is what we are called to do. In your own head, make sure you understand that the Great Commission, the God's command for us cannot be obediently fulfilled unless this circle is complete, where you're teaching people to love and exalt and pray and long for the day where Jesus comes back to draw his people to himself. And if not, you're missing it. You may be a good learner of Jesus. You may be kind of following in his footsteps, but you don't believe him, not in any, merit, any meritable way where you will actually say something about it. So what does this look like? I'm going to end on this. This means that one of the books we'll, we'll, uh, we'll often quote here, uh, you'll see us kind of talk about this on a regular basis. There's a um, gaining to lose or uh, like gaining or losing to gain. It's a, a book by J.D. Greer. And one of my favorite quotes from this book, he says this, and you'll hear me say this a lot, right? So whatever you do, you do well, you do it for, whatever you do well, you do it for the glory of God. But here's the second thing. You do it somewhere strategically for the mission of God. So you're wicked good at doing stocks, or whatever. You're wicked good at like selling cars or you're a nurse, a doctor, help you. Whatever. You're good at that. That's awesome. There's a lot of different things you might be weighing, a lot of different components you might be thinking about, like what kind of vocation should I pursue or what, what should I do next? Is it possible that the kingdom of God might ought to be at least one of, if not the top priority? But I don't know. I mean, there's markets everywhere. There's, there's business and economies everywhere. Why not think about doing what God has wired you to do well as leverage for the sake of the kingdom? Why not consider where you ought to live based on, I don't know, what you see God doing? Does that sound radical? Does that sound crazy? Friend, that's literally the most fundamental and basic step. They drop their nets, they follow Jesus. They said, here's my job, here's my vocation. Here, Jesus, you can have it. Literally, that, again, that, as I say that, I want like, you think, oh my goodness, he is asking a tall order. That is an amazing thing Jesus is asking. That's, ooh, that's like varsity Jesus followers. No, that's literally like the first thing we teach in Sunday school or in like, like Kids Connection. Like, this is the first thing you would have learned at, like, at a vacation Bible school. Drop what you're doing, follow Jesus. What if the thing that God made you good at, he made you good at for his glory? What if currently you, just you, you are wired and, and gifted in such a way that God can use you. God can use you as like a, a picture of the gospel in the world. Why not begin to leverage that? Why not begin to do that in a way that draws attention to his name? I want to tell you where this ends. And if you want to, you can follow me there. But I'm going to read Revelation chapter 7. And I want to convince you, this is why we do it. One of the axioms that I'll ask you to think about is this, that you will disciple the way that you were discipled. That is, you will make disciples the way that others drew you into making or being a disciple. Now, that's scary for some of us because if you're like me, you weren't discipled. No one taught you. <laughs> they just, they hoped it by osmosis, like somehow... You'd imagine, oh, I have the Bible memorized. Like, I, I don't know. It's, so I want to be very intentional about how I draw you into following and exalting Jesus. And we do this across many different fronts. We do this like one on a crowd, like Jesus did. We do it like one on 12 or like one on three even. Like Jesus takes Peter, James, and John and the 12. Sometimes he pulls them aside. That for us is what gospel community is. People ask, why do you do small groups? Because we want to be like Jesus. Uh, and that's all I got. And so we, we intentionally try to follow Jesus as a group. But then we do one-on-one. -on -one. Like John 4, woman at the well. Jesus begins to speak you know, important, powerful truths to people one-on-one. -on -one. Because I don't know if you know this, it's hard to call people out on sin in a crowd. It doesn't really work that well. It's not very effective. Like, oh, thanks for making me look like a fool. I'm going to stop doing that now. So, so that's why like, following Jesus covers a multi, is a multifaceted approach to us. But here's why. You will disciple the way that you were discipled. And so I'm going to be very intentional about how I lead you to follow and lay down your life for Jesus. And I want to do it by convincing you of this, that Jesus is worth it. Revelation 7 says this. This is the very end. This is how this all ends. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending, 
from the rising of the sun with a seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Right? So now skip, skip forward. Beginning in verse 9. There's a seal, a mark. Remember, you don't, you don't choose to follow Jesus. It's kind of weird. He chooses his followers. I want to consider the possibility that he's doing that now. This vision in verse 9 says, After I looked, behold, there was a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, that is Jesus, the one who has died in our place, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the, el- and ar- and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Friend, Jesus is worth it. We exalt Jesus in our day-to-day lives. We exalt Jesus on a Sunday morning because that is what we will be doing forever and ever and ever. I know it feels weird. Sometimes we get together and sing and it's not a soccer game. Friend, don't worry about it. After a few million years, you'll get used to it. And then, and then for the rest of eternity, we'll continue to exalt and glorify Jesus. He's worth it. He, you can lay down every, you can lay down the friendships that, you're, that are like trapping you. You can lay down your life, your job, your vocation, and you can know that it won't be a loss. It's worth it. Friend, I don't want to guilt you into following Jesus. I don't want to guilt you into telling someone else about Jesus. I want to tell you that for those of us who love and exalt Jesus, this is what we're going to do forever. And so, let's start doing that now. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your goodness and mercy. I thank you for what you have accomplished for us. God, forgive me for the ways in which that uh, this, I, I'm, even, I'm unable to make it even clear. Uh, I know my words are so small compared to the glory that you deserve. But would you take even my feeble attempt to... to blunder through what you've done for us and called us to be in our city Uh, would you take this feeble attempt and make it into something that's beautiful and useful Uh, if you can use nobodies to to spread the gospel and change the world uh, then i pray that you would even be able to use my feeble attempt to draw attention to christ for his glory so if there's some in this room maybe maybe they wouldn't call themselves christians and this seems like a strange thing to talk about for an hour to get excited about would you begin to open their eyes to the possibility that you, Jesus, might be calling them, that you might have gifted them and and marvelously wired them together so that they, in a unique way that no one else can, can glorify and point towards you. Would you begin to call us to yourself to lay down our lives for the sake of knowing you and loving you? Help us to see that you are worth it. If there's some of us, maybe we've called ourselves Christians for a long time, but we've never thought about exalting you in our life, laying down something for the sake of your kingdom, would you begin to open our eyes to the way that the Spirit is calling us to exalt Christ in our families, our relationships, our vocation, and even our eternity? Do this for us, Jesus. Amen.